Well, Westmount, take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. That's where we will reside this morning. And this has been said as you're turning there, that these are uncertain times. I feel, beloved, believe me, anytime I make any kind of comment like that, it's redundant, but we're saturated in them, and many would say and have said that these are uncertain times, and they are. Again, when we do these things, we need to recognize what the times are. The times are uncertain to us all. Is that not true? The times are uncertain. In fact, as we now send, what is this, the third day of 2021, it is incredible. Have we experienced a year like this where no one knows what this year will bring? And it is unbelievable anxiety. I just look out at capital A anxiety. What will this year bring? No one is certain about 2021. It is true, beloved. Uncertainty then, as you survey this earth, is all that you have market when there is a void of assurance. Right? That's all you have. Uncertainty when there's no assurance. And Westmount again... We have talked at length how there's a void of assurance. Listen to me. We can be offered and submitted all the faux assurance we want. We can say, be assured, we just need to flatten the curve. Be assured, we just need to lock it down for this time. Be assured, you just need to wear this, do that, receive this. With all the false sense of assurance ultimately that it brings. And beloved, listen to me, isn't it true? Even with the promise of vaccination this year, no one is feeling assured. The white horse has come and no one's feeling assured about that. The supposed one. Yes, friends, there is assurance in none of those things. Listen to me, none of them produce trust. And consider that, church, the world then has a wrong understanding of assurance. Jerry last week talked about hope. And we've talked about this at Westmount. We need to reclaim these biblical words. The world knows nothing of hope. Whatever is hope for in 2021, listen to me, is not hope in an earthly standpoint. We need to reclaim assurance because whatever is being presented to you each day is assurance in a horizontal sense. Beloved, it is not assurance. It's not assurance. In fact, I would say this, and you can challenge me on this. Earthly assurance by nature is composed of uncertainty. Let me say that again. Earthly assurance by its very nature is composed of uncertainty. Is that not true? No one can have certainty about things on this earth. No one can. Yet we seek it. We seek it. So it is with earthly assurance. And when you think about the proclamations of assurance, what's being offered that it's going to be okay. Throw a hashtag on it and it's going to be okay, is what you're being told. Do you know the saints of old knew the trappings of earthly assurance? The, the faithful, and here it is, persecuted saints of old, they knew this, and that is why they gained their assurance elsewhere. John Knox, the very famous great Scottish reformer, once hunted down by the queen herself, 
You talk about persecution, talk about a target on one's back. And living, by the way, John Knox, in a far more perilous time than we're going through today. John Knox might say, if I could uh, respectfully say so, wow, that's all you have? John Knox would look at the landscape very different. John Knox was actually facing death during the last days of his life. He realized that death was knocking at his door, and he sought assurance. And John Knox found it. Yes, he truly found it, and here it is, real assurance. And do you know where he found it? It's open right in front of you, chapter 17, the Gospel of John. This is what he wanted on death's door. This is what he wanted. In fact, it is said that Knox's wife was reading him this very chapter of Scripture when he died. Isn't that amazing? He was assured. He was assured. Yes, John Knox had assurance in both life and death. Here it is, both sickness and health. He had assurance. And beloved, hear me, real assurance. Something you can hang on to and hope for. Because it's real and it's true. Not fake. It's not going to let you down in a few months. Dad is not going to show that it wasn't the real thing. No, this is real. Real. And you might say this morning, when you think about John Knox, and I'm with you, I want that. Because I look at church history and I look at the saints of old. Jason, I want that. What is that that they had? Because I want a piece of that. Have you not said that? What, what did they have to get through fiery persecution? I need some of that. Oh, beloved, listen to me. There was nothing special about John Knox or any in church history. Nothing at all. We think that so often, don't we? They were just holier than thou. Do you think that? Like, man, they were pious. But listen, they were just like you and me. Just like you and me. They were men and women, sinners, needing salvation just like you and me, and also living not only in difficult times, but here's the rub, far more difficult times than we're facing today. It just is astounding to me, Jeremy and Jerry take us through church history, what they endured and suffered. Yet how come they were more assured? Well, the difference so often, church, is not who they were, like they were super saints, but it's what they knew. And that's the key. I want to submit to you, Westmount, it is no coincidence. It's no coincidence that trust and assurance in the church of Christ's church was much greater in a time when there was far less inputs. I think it is not a coincidence that John Knox didn't have CNN. I think it's not a coincidence that John Knox couldn't turn to CBC and read a blog and an article. I think it's no coincidence that John Knox didn't have a friend like I did that told me before the pandemic, you won't believe what's going on in China. You got to see this. How many waves of people from then the fear began? John Knox, I might submit, had no clue what was going on across the water. But we do. And what does it do? Does it help us? Absolutely not. When you have 98% speculation that you read every day, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that will erode your assurance every time. Every time. All we read is speculation and fear. Every time. And I am with you, beloved, please. 
I fall for those things just like you do. And I am very much preaching to myself this morning. I would submit to you, beloved, that most, if not all, of our anxieties, troubles, and doubts, and so much of our unhappiness is a direct result that we do not turn to the assurance provided to us. Oh, beloved, we are so distracted by the imposters, are we not? We are distracted by them. And we don't turn to the real assurance, the blessed assurance that we have. And then, even when we do look at the word, even when we do, because that's what we're supposed to do, right? Even when we do, we're in a hurry, are we not? And we're distracted. Have you been there? You're looking at the word and you speed through the eternal word of God because you can't wait to get to the latest word of man. We're easily bored with God's book and we speed through it to get to the excitement of man's books. We're restless and fidgety, and this doesn't do it for us. And then we wonder why we're not assured. Yes, we have moments with Scripture, beloved, moments, but we are void of meditations with Scripture. Beloved, one of the true great dangers in this time is this. For us to read the Scriptures too quickly too generally, too flippantly, too dutifully, and not carefully. To not approach, look at it, please, look at it in your lap, the living word of God. We treat it just like ink on a page. We don't look at the words deeply. We're looking at the words, but we're not looking into them. We're talking about here not skimming phrases, but saturating in every phrase. Our great danger, Westman, is not letting, here it is, the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Texts like the one that's open in front of you right now prove this point. And I want to understand. This may be a hard morning. It is for me. I want to run a very hard and difficult diagnostic test right now. If you're with me. How often have you read the Gospel of John? How about John 17? How often have you read that chapter? Do you know it? I mean, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Do you know this chapter? Do you know it? Can you recount the truth? Someone says to you, what's going on in John 17? Would you say, oh yeah, this is what's going on. Can you break it down? Even more, beloved, do you live under this truth? Because I want to submit to you something this morning. Again, first and foremost, if what we're about to read is true, it changes everything. If what we're about to read is true, and praise God Almighty it is, it changes everything. Beloved John 17, the text open in front of you is like a text of texts for assurance. I agree, many commentators of old have expressed it something like this, I quote, If we had nothing but John 17, we would surely have more than enough to assure and sustain us. Amen. What a text. And friends, we'll gain that only, listen, we only have time this morning to do five verses of this Everest chapter. Just five, and we'll glean more than enough, more than enough. There is a wealth of treasure here. True assurance in this chapter beyond measure. Westmount, let us not forget the context here. 
What is the context of this chapter as we now parachute into this gospel? It is fear. It's anxiety. It's uncertainty that abounds. The context of this chapter is an upper room of followers of Jesus Christ that are anxious and troubled. Does that resonate? They're sitting in an upper room and they're anxious and fearful and uncertain about what's to happen. That's the context of this chapter. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God, believe also in me. The Lord Jesus knows they're anxious, and he says, don't be. And what's the antidote? Belief. Belief in God, not in circumstance. Look at chapter 15, verse 18. You talk about anxiety being ever-present. Jesus says, if the world hates you, and the first century demonstrated that it very much hated the apostles and disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Wow, you talk about parting words. A worldly lens would say, how is that assuring? And then, what about this? Their leader, look at chapter 16, verse 16. A little while, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Jesus, are you telling me you're going away? You're going away, the disciples would say in that upper room. Lots and lots of questions. But I want you to note this before we descend into the chapter. Look at the last verse of chapter 16. You wonder if this would have been missed through the anxiety. He's just downloaded all of that. And then look at this. I have said these things to you. So he's given all that he's given. That in me, not in anything else. Do you see that? You may have what? Peace. In Christ, you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Man, oh man, is that a great amen for this year. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's from Jesus Christ, the God-man. Amazing. Take heart, I have overcome the world. That is what we see in this chapter, or what has set the table for this chapter, I'm sorry. That's the context, that Passover night. And it was outside of Jesus' words and what he's about to say, listen, everything else other than what the words of God are saying, God, man, do you see that? Everything else is dark, except what Jesus is saying. Think about what's looming over that upper room, the arrest, the execution orders, out for Christ. As the events unfold in the Gospels, you recognize, think of Peter's denial, not once, but twice and three times. It's never been a more dangerous time to be a follower of Jesus Christ than right here. And that's the context. And of all the things that Christ could give his followers by way of assurance, note that, of all the things that he could give them, what does he give? A prayer. A prayer. And I want you to consider as we begin this morning, Jesus didn't have to do this, right? Think about this. This is a prayer, as we'll see, between the Son of God, and God the Father. He didn't have to do this, but he pulls the Trinitarian curtain back. Why? Well, if you want to flip, you can look at chapter 11. Do you remember the Lazarus account? Jesus utters the same sentiment. He doesn't need to do this. He doesn't need to pray to God as he does in chapter 11, right? Look at verse 41. 
They take away the stone from Lazarus. Jesus lifts up his eyes and says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. So again, he's praying here a very short prayer. But here's what he says. Note very carefully, verse 42. I knew, so there's nothing new for me, son of God says, that you always hear me. I know that, but look, but I said this prayer, this, on account of the people standing around. And here it is, that they may believe that you sent me. Why does Jesus do what he does? Why does he pull that curtain back for us so that we would be affirmed and assured? No different here in John 17. In fact, exactly the same. And of course, this prayer is very noteworthy for a number of reasons, but let's just point out two. Number one, this prayer in John 17 is a prayer from, we've mentioned this already, God the Son to God the Father. That I mean, if you just think about that for a minute, that's astounding, isn't it? This is an inter-Trinitarian prayer. David's prayers are powerful and we're blessed by them. Paul's prayers are always helpful. <clears throat> but listen to me. This is the prayer of Jesus Christ. This is truly the Lord's prayer. You know, we prayed what is often referred to as the Lord's prayer earlier. I prayed that before the message. Uh, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's more than the Lord's Prayer. It's the prayer the Lord modeled for us. He did it. Remember, when you pray, he said to his followers, pray like this. This here in John 17, I would submit to you, is more accurately the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. And what a prayer it is. So that's one. God the Son to God the Father prayer. Two, not just who is praying to who, but two, the content of this prayer. In Westmount, I want to say assurance starts right here. And I mean, I've said it already, and look at it. This is the God-man praying. This is the God-man praying. I mean, this is not necessarily to cheapen other prayers of Scripture than it is to elevate this one. That makes sense. Much more we're going to say on this, but in terms of content, we must consider this. What Jesus has to say in this prayer is set apart. Why? If for no other reason, it's set apart because Jesus Christ is praying this to the Father. Now, this prayer can be divided into three sections. Take a look at it with a bird's eye view. Three subheadings of the prayer. In verses 1 through 5, look at them. Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the apostles right there in the upper room. And note this, verses 20 to 26, you want to talk about a precious portion of scripture for us today. And I mean, all of it is, Jesus prays for everyone else, all his followers. You and me, beloved, right there in verses 20 to 26. He is praying for you. Jesus praying for you at the end of this chapter. Again, we're looking primarily at the first five verses today. You might peek in here and there to the rest, but the gold is just so rich. And I encourage you as you leave and later today, maybe you just read the rest of this chapter and be assured. Okay, lots going on here. And again, we're not even going to get to the first five verses if I don't get going here. We're considering the assurance that this prayer provides. And as we look at these opening verses, we're going to see three realities that anchor our assurance. Three of them in the opening five verses. This is bedrock stuff. First anchor is this, Christ's acknowledgement. Christ's acknowledgement. First verse, look at it with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. 
So we stop there for a moment. First, we see this prayer comes after Jesus had spoken what? These words. And what are these words? Well, the very ones that we noted a moment ago. Jesus has been doing a lot of speaking here in the upper room. Jesus, remember, informing the apostles of his betrayal, his leaving, and the world's hatred. All of those words. After all of that, then he prays. That's the context of this prayer. And in this moment, their fear, their anxiety, the uncertainty, Jesus does what? Remember, he prays. But even more than that, let's drill down now. He is turning to the Father. He acknowledges the Father. This is so fundamental. After all of these things, he turns and acknowledges the Father. And Christian, it's a reality like this that begs the obvious question, and we need to constantly ask ourselves these. It may seem obvious, but we need it in these times. Is that acknowledgement true for you and me? Is it? We actually cannot ask ourselves this question enough. Who or what is your first acknowledgement in these troubled times? Who do you turn to? Beloved, I ask you, what is your reflex when you get bad news? What is your reflex? Who do you turn to? And you know, again, beloved, I must confess to you in these troubled times, I have failed here. So I want you to know, I stand up here not saying, no, this is perfection, this is what you need to do. I'm with you. I give this exhortation and this charge again to myself just as much to you. Our innate reflexes of, what can I do? Have you been there? You get bad news. Okay, what do I need to do? Your reflex of, what should I do? What's my plan? How am I going to get through this? I, 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 I. Crowds out and overrides us in anxious times. Yet that is not what you see here. Christ acknowledges who? The Father first. After all that bad news to the disciples, he acknowledges the Father. Now, it's important we see it that way because this is not the only acknowledgement. This is why this prayer is so rich. There's more than one acknowledgement here. This prayer is not a reductionistic example, right? Just look to God. Just look to God. There's always truth in that, but that's not what we're saying. There's much more here. There is a subsequent acknowledgement here. Look, not just the person of God. Look at verse 1 again, but also the plan of God. Do you see that? And what is that? Look at verse 1 again, Father, the hour has come. Well, now that's interesting. He doesn't just acknowledge the Father, but he acknowledges the hour. And what hour is this? Is this from 8 to 9 p.m. on Passover night? Is it a specific hour that night? No, this expression is the same one used earlier in the Gospel of John, and you've seen this before. Think about John 12, 23. Remember when the Greek seekers come and they have questions for Jesus? And what does he say through the disciples? He passes this on. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. More than just a, a specific literal hour, an eight to nine slot, this is a time frame. Even more, you could say it this way, the time has come, right? The time has come for me to make this change. The time has come for me to do this. And that is more referring to a broader approach, a broader span of time than just a moment. And that's exactly what's going on here. This is an end times kind of a reference. You say an eschatology kind of a reference. The time has come. This is Mark 1, 15. The fullness of time has come. It's exactly what Jesus is referring to. This is a key pillar in the plan of God that's being unfolded now on the eve of the crucifixion. 
And the glory of that plan is what Jesus refers to next. Look at the end of verse 1. Glorify your Son. That's what he says to God the Father. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Amazing. Jesus says, glorify your Son, Father. Fulfill this plan. Validate my life in death. Validate it all with the resurrection. Do that, Father. Glorify the Son. And no, that's not it. It's not Jesus just saying, do this for me. That glorified Son is for the greater purpose of what? So that. That's purpose. So that the Son may glorify you, Father. See that? Christ's glory is to acknowledge the great glory of the Father. Jesus' ultimate purpose, note it, is to glorify the Father. Beloved, might I submit that if the glory of God is the Son of God's chief end, if the glory of God is the Son of God's chief end, then I submit to us, it would be our ultimate end acknowledgement as well. Brothers and sisters, is the glory of God the chief end of your prayers as well? Assurance, loved ones, begins right here. Turning, acknowledging God first, his person, his plans. And church, remember, we're pouring into a foundation of assurance here. This prayer demonstrates to us that even in the most difficult times, even in difficult times like today, the motivation of Christ's prayer, as you see here in the opening verse, is what? To glorify the Father. That is the acknowledgement of assurance. Here it is. Here's your first building block. Acknowledge the glory of God. Acknowledge Him, His plan. Church, with that, let us consider the role of our prayers and our assurance. Because our prayers do have a, a role in our assurance. God uses them that way. You might say, well, yes, I acknowledge God's glory. I do that. But friends, I ask again, as we get deep this morning, do you? Do you acknowledge the glory of God when you pray? And here it is, an acknowledgement of the glory of God in all things means that not only your glory, but by extension, your will cannot compete. Your glory, your will cannot coexist and compete with God's will, especially when it's of the flesh. We want things to stop. I am sure you've all said that during 2020. Will it just go away? We want this to change. We want that differently. But to acknowledge God's glory in our prayers is to say, Father, whatever this is, may it glorify you. Not will my will be done. Assurance then is anchored not in how we view things. And beloved, I cannot say that enough. Assurance is not how you're calculating the present times. It's not about knowing the right people, plugging into the right experts. It's not about your reasoning at all. That's not what assurance is. In fact, that's deadly. But assurance begins, and you see here with the acknowledgement, in what God has ordained for the globe. That's where assurance rests. And Westmount, this is so vital to start. And hear me, how can we ever, hear me, how can we ever have assurance if our plans, our wills, and everything about us are at constant odds with God. Does that make sense? How can you ever be assured in these times if constantly in your prayer life you're wrestling with God, just give me this. 
God, this is all I'm asking. Please, just this one thing. You will never have peace, right? It doesn't work in an earthly sense, and believe me, it doesn't work in a heavenly sense. You acknowledge the glory of God, which means his will in all things. And beloved, hear this. A failure to acknowledge God and his glory is not only a futile exercise, but it actually runs counter to the very thing that you're seeking in these times. Did you know that? You want to be assured. You're begging for it. But as you arm wrestle God for your agenda and your list, you're eroding the very assurance that he's given you through his glory and his will. No, beloved, acknowledge God. Like Jesus here, first, foremost, always and in everything. Seek his glory. Rest in his will. That is how assurance begins. But that's one, Christ's acknowledgement. Two, Christ's authority. Look at verse two, Christ's authority. Jesus continues, since you have given him authority, this is the son, over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus has been given authority. Look at it. What's the domain of his authority? Over all flesh. That means logically everyone. Do you see that? And that means both followers and rejectors. Jesus has authority over them. And let's not miss this, friends. The fact that most people reject Christ doesn't take away from the reality that he still has authority over them. We live under this myth sometimes. Just because your loved one, your relative, your neighbor, your co-worker rejects Christ doesn't mean they're not subject to the authority of Christ. And our evangelism is motivated by the fact that one day they're going to really realize that just as much as you know it. Matthew 28, 18, before Jesus sends his disciples into the world, he says this, listen, all authority, where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, this is cosmic. This is not just the church or a realm of the globe or even the globe. This is cosmic authority. And that authority overall grants Christ the right to do what? Look at this, look at this, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Two things to consider here with that massive statement. Both, we're just going to point out the plain reading of what we just saw. Number one, Christ gives eternal life. We don't. More, we would say it is Christ's prerogative, Christ's discretion, Christ's authority, Christ's will, not ours. We certainly didn't choose it, nor would we ever left to our own devices. And beloved, this is just one verse of so many that demonstrate the fact that Christ gives the gift. We don't reason our way to God. Even more, look at what Christ says. The redeemed are ones given by God. This is amazing. In other words, God has given Christ, the Son of God, a gift. And the gift from father to son, grab this, is a redeemed, redeemed group redeemed church to be saved. What a picture. What a picture, a gift. This is not a one-off verse, beloved, in terms of us being chosen and gifted to the Son. Look at it. Those whom the Father has given to Christ. Look at verse 6. You're going to see the same thing. Track with me now through this prayer. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. Verse 9. I'm praying for them who, I'm not praying for the world, but who? For those whom you have given me, 
Look at the middle of verse 11. Keep them in your name, who which you have given me. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. We can go on and on one more directly related to us. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, this would be you and me, Christian, whom you have given me. And here's your assurance, may be with me where I am. Oh, there's just so much I'm tempted for so many rabbit trails here. There's so much here. Those whom the Father has given to Christ. And, and this is not even a verse or a chapter thing. Consider John 6, 44. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then this promise, here's your assurance, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's what Jesus says of those given to him. This is what it, exactly Ephesians 1, 3 to 4, Jerry took us through this. This is God's great plan, right? Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what is that? What is that comprised of? Verse 4, here, here it is. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Amazing truth. Again, it doesn't end there. First Peter, you see this truth everywhere. First Peter, the greeting of the book. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are, what? Elect exiles of the dispersion. He goes on, verse 2, according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. We can go on and on. One more. The book of Acts, note this. Acts 13, 48 says this, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Do you see that? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The concert of God's word, all saying the same thing. Church, God the Father gave you to God the Son. You are a gift to him, church. Assurance is built on this solid rock. Listen to Jesus and God's will. This can't be clear. Listen to this. Same context of John 6 few verses before John 6:39 speaking of God's glory God's will this is the will of him who sent me so this is the father's will that i should lose nothing of all that he has given me what did we say he will hold me fast right we have confidence when we sing that because of verses like this but not only will none be lost but jesus says i will raise it up on the last day and then verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have what? Eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Amazing truths, beloved. I pray you grab a hold of these in Scripture. Now, the promise of eternal life that you see in John 6, hang on to that, because that's our second point to, to grab onto here in John 17. Speaking of eternal life, it's here in this prayer too. Did you catch it in verse 2? Don't miss this adjective. Jesus says, authority over flesh to give not just life, but look at it, eternal life to all whom you have given him. Eternal life. Now, this is one of those times we talked about earlier. We must meditate, not rush. Westmont, eternal life means most obviously life beyond this one, right? Eternal life means something beyond this temporal existence. That's what that means. That means life not only beyond a pandemic, 
but beyond whatever life has for you here, whatever it is. Eternity, hear me, eternity compared to 80 or 90 years here is not much of a comparison at all, is it? It's not. In fact, even the whole drop in the ocean analogy doesn't compare because the ocean is finite. We're talking of eternity and eternal life here it is, is quantitatively much more than what people are trying to cling to. People are trying to cling to, by their own strength, 80 years. But eternal life is so much more than that, and that is a gift, not by your own strength. Friends, eternal life is not just a quantity of life or a future possession, but here it is. Eternal life is also a quality of life. Let's not miss this. Eternal life is now. Eternal life is a quality of your life and existence that you can have right now and that you do have now if you're in Christ. John 5, 24, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, listen to this, whoever hears my word and believes in him, so the redeemed, whoever believes in him who has sent me, here it is, has eternal life. Isn't that amazing? If you believe the received word about the Son of God, if you have repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as not just Savior but Lord, you have eternal life right now. You are living eternal life right now. Amazing. And this is, by the way, John 5, 24, that's present tense. That's not a future tense. This is present tense. You have it and possess it right now. Yes, Christian, you enjoy eternal life presently. And what does that look like? You say, well, what does that look like, eternal life, right now? Look at verse 3. Jesus answers this directly. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, do you see that? Do you, look at verse 3. Do you see this? Eternal life is not just chronological. It's not just living the perpetuity, right, on and on, eternal life, here it is, is Christological. That's what it is. We're talking about Christ. It is, look, it's knowing the true God in Jesus Christ. That's what everything is about. To know God, be reconciled to him, and to know Christ. And Westmount, here again, is another word we throw around a lot, often without thought, that we know things. I know this. You know that. We say that all the time. We say we know this, we know that, but how often does to know equal to know about? Do you know what I mean? When we're saying we know something, what we're really saying is to know about. We tell our sister from New Zealand that we know New Zealand, but we don't know New Zealand, do we? As much as I watch Middle Earth and all of that, I still don't know New Zealand, right? She knows New Zealand. Do you know what I'm talking about? She's there. She's been there. Family there. She understands what it means to be in New Zealand and to be of New Zealand descent. Very different. Yet we use the same word to describe it. We say, oh yeah, I know that. Now we can't capture this in the English. This is why original languages are so important with just one word. We have one word knowledge and it's a one-dimensional word. It's a good word, but it's one-dimensional. The Greek gives us two words for knowledge. One is oida, and the other is gnosko. And you know at least one of those. You know gnosis, prognosis, hypnosis, knowledge, and a special type of knowledge. The word that Jesus uses here, then, is gnosko. 
Oida is to know about, to have intellectual head knowledge. Listen, beloved, that's not the word Jesus uses here. He's talking about a deep knowledge of Jesus, of God, a gnosis. This gnosko then is not head or intellectual knowledge, but here it is, grab it, a deep, intimate, relational knowledge. This is real understanding. <clears throat> and it's exactly what John refers to elsewhere. You know, he fortifies and closes. Think about his first letter, 1 John. He fortifies that letter with this reminder of assurance. Listen to this, 1 John 5.20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. There it is, understanding. So that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and what? Eternal life. It's the same message John says here as he says there. And I want you to consider this for a moment. Christ and only Christ has the authority to grant eternal life. Christ and only Christ has the authority to grant that kind of quality of life. Which is the deep, intimate knowledge of the true God in Jesus Christ. Hear me, friends. Not just knowing about God. Everyone claims to know about God. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that. We're talking about knowing him personally, relationally. What we're talking about with gnosis is a knowledge so deep and intimate that you look at one's life and you say, they know God. Does that make sense? They know God. They have a gnosis of God. Not just a surface knowledge or profession. Westmount, you have been granted under the authority of Jesus Christ knowledge of the true God. That's what you've been granted. This is not a Bible tidbit. This is another building block for your assurance today. And I ask you this, Christian. Hear me. Is trust stronger in closer relationships? Is it? I ask you this also. Is assurance stronger in close relationships with people of character? Is it? Well, if you're assured by godly people are, and men here on earth, if you're assured by godly folks around you, and we are, how much more can you and must you be assured by the perfect God? How much more? This is what we're talking about here. This is not knowledge of someone that you hope doesn't let you down sometime. Jeremy and Jerry read Psalm 46, and by God's providence read it twice that you know, be still and know. That I am God. We're not talking about earthly things. Bills and medical reports. We're talking about earthquakes. So that the uh, whole earth gives way. We're talking about the nations raging. And if it's true in the greater. That you would be still and know that he is God. How much true in the lesser? Do you see your assurance? God says my little children. I'm on this. I've got this one. You don't know what 2021 will be. But I do. And all you need to do is acknowledge me and look at my authority over all things. That's all we need to do. Is that not a piece? I don't need a plan for 2021 in a grand sense. I just need to turn and rest in Christ. Now, we would say, well, that sounds really esoteric and out there. You know what I'm talking about. We are responsible. We make our day-to-day -day plans. That's not what I'm saying. It means in the big things, the things that keep you up at night, you acknowledge Christ in his authority and say, Lord, it is true. I do not have this one, but you do. 
And why, brothers and sisters, listen to me, you do not just know about God, right? Do you see why we make much about a personal, real relationship with Jesus Christ? Because how many people just know about God but can't sleep at night? You do not just know about God. No, you know God. You have a gnosis of God. You have been granted intimate relationship with him. That's the gift that you have. Intimate relationship with God Almighty. The authority of Christ to grant eternal life, that quality of life, church, that is our assurance. But one more. Christ's acknowledgement, Christ's authority, and Christ's accomplishment. Look at verse 4. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Christ says the glory he secured for the Father was because of his work on earth. And what was that work? Note this. 1 Peter 2.22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. What was that perfect work? A perfect life. Lived by Christ, then laid down as the atonement, the propitiation. For those that God the Father gave to him. And here it is, that atonement accomplished. And that atonement was acceptable to God. And we know that because Christ conquered the grave. And if Christ was resurrected as an emblem of a sufficient, complete atonement, then that means there is nothing left to be done. Do you hear that this morning? There's nothing left to be done. What did Jesus say? In the middle of that atonement, it is finished. That's the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And by the way, in verse 4, it says his work was accomplished. That's past. Past and it's done. There's nothing more to do. That's active, indicative past, or more so, complete truth. Nothing remains. Christ has accomplished all that we could not. And his accomplishment, here's another building block, his accomplishment is assurance. What incredible building blocks of assurance we have thus far. Think with me for a moment. Can you be assured knowing that if you die tonight, it's not about your works? Can you be assured that if you die tonight, you stand before a holy God and your future is secure because of the finished, past tense, completed work of God? Can you be assured of that? Praise God. You have that assurance. You walk out today with that assurance. Though the mountains give way, though the nations rage, you can be secure knowing because of his perfect life, you can be assured. Oh, I pray you grab that. What incredible building blocks of assurance we have thus far. Acknowledgement, authority, the accomplished work of Christ. Yet the God-man, he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to, but he gives us one more pillar. Did you catch it? And we referred to it earlier. He gives one more, but now it's fully developed in this fifth verse. As Jesus seals the first part of this prayer with this. And it's found two times in verse 5. But don't let that fool you. It's all over this prayer. Let's read verse 5. And I think you'll pick it out. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let's just survey Westmount here. Why is our assurance strengthened by this prayer? Look very closely here, and then we'll pull back and look at the landscape. It's mentioned twice in verse 5. It's mentioned five times in these opening five verses, and it's littered throughout the entire chapter. Do you see it? 
Do you see it? Glory. Glory, the glory of God. Remember, we noted the acknowledgement of Christ to start and talked about the implications for our prayers, which were our will versus his will. Well, here we consider much bigger implications. The canvas here, beloved, I have to tell you, it is universal. In fact, it transcends time. The implications here are huge. Let's look at verse 5 again. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Note very carefully, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Do you see that? Christ's not just referring to glory, but he's referring to glory that existed where and when? In eternity. Before the world existed. This is monumental. Beloved, God's glory is eternal. God's glory is not just here and there at times. Oh, you know, God was glorified in that moment. Oh, you know, I give God glory here. No, 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 no. God is glorified in those things. Please don't mishear me. But there is a greater glory going on before this world even began and after this world melts away. You see that? There's a greater glory. God's glory indeed is massive in cosmic scope. And as we noted earlier, you can be assured, and here it is, because your being, your salvation, your union with Christ is tied directly to the glory of God. Do you see that? Your everything is tied to eternity and the glory of God. And with that, I ask you, do you think that God Almighty is concerned with his glory? Does God uphold his glory for all the work that God would do? Does he uphold his glory? You know the answer to that. But of course, we all need reminders. Isaiah 48, 11, it says this. For my own sake, God says, and he repeats it, he says, for my own sake, twice, I do it. In other words, I act. For how should my name be profaned? And then he says this, my glory I will not give to another. Ezekiel 20, verse 9, same thing. God says, I acted. Why did you act, God? For the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations. So what? Here's a big action we know well when we get back to Exodus. So I led my people out of Egypt so that his name would not be profaned. Some people would know he is God. And you know the Psalms. Many of you know Psalm 23, verse 3. What does it say? He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. That's why he does it. Listen, there's nothing wrong with thinking because it's true. God loves you and cares about you. But beloved, your assurance can't just sit there. It must rest in what the Bible says in that transcendent truth. God loves you and cares about your passive righteousness. But listen, here's your assurance. No matter what you do, he leads you in passive righteousness because he cares about his glory. It's not about you. Praise God, it's not about you. It's about his glory. That's why you can have peace tonight. Because it's about him and not you. Psalm 79, the psalmist cries out to God. I think we've been crying out to God. And what's the basis for that confident cry? Verse 9, the glory of your name. You ever catch that in the Psalms and the saints of old? Oh Lord, what will the nations say of you? What of your glory? What about 1 John 2.12? The elder John writing to assure the younger generation. I just love this. He says this. Verse 12, chapter 2. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Praise be. Then this, the Why? Why are they forgiven? For his name's sake. Do you see the great plan? Again, Jerry will walk us through this in Ephesians. He has been. 
There is something greater going on than the granular details of our life. And hear me, God cares about them. But you don't want to rest your assurance there. You want to rest it there. And truths like this. And church, listen, if God does all of that deliverance, leading, forgiveness, in all of those acts, if all of them are rooted and anchored in the glory of God, and your salvation, and your new life here and now, your eternal life, qualitatively, if all of that is woven together, which is, and which was, ordained before the foundation of the world, then I simply ask you this morning, can you have assurance in that? Can you be assured knowing that your very livelihood, wherever you are this morning, if you're in Christ, your safety, your security, your hope, your everything is tied to something eternal and perfect and glorious. I ask you, beloved, can you have assurance in that? Yes. Yes, we can. Listen, brothers and sisters, there is no greater ground of assurance. There is no greater ground of assurance and security in this world, especially 2020, 2021. There's no greater ground of assurance and security in this world than to know that you're part of the grand plan and purpose of God. Can there be a greater assurance? It's not about what you'll do for the rest of today. It's not about tomorrow or next week or next month or this year or the rest of your life. It's actually about eternity. That's where your assurance is. Again, Jerry will pick up the baton next week as he takes us through a grand book that talks about God's plan. Remember God's plan, our place? And we see, and we will see, nothing can thwart the plans of God. Beloved, your assurance is tied not just to glory, but directly to eternal glory. There's no so-called assurance in this finite, chaotic, and very much dying world. Don't try to grab on to a piece of driftwood that's going down when you have the anchor, God Almighty, right there that's been given as a gift to you. Nothing compares to the eternal weight of glory, beloved. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I pray all of us gain assurance in that truth today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessed assurance that we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we were part of a plan that's not about us, but about your glory in eternity past. Thank you that we were part of a gift given from Father to Son. Thank you that we were given as part of a gift that's a token to the certainty of who you are that is a trophy to all the earth, to the, to the very universe itself, that you are God, there is no other. Thank you, Father, we're part of a promise that cannot be broken. Thank you that we have hope that is certain. And thank you, Father, that through all of the things going on today, that we can grab onto that and rest in that. Thank you, Father. May we do so as we continue our days, however long you ordain them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.